We continue in our summer sermon series titled God's Vocabulary, visiting this day the word repentance. Let us listen once more for God's word hearing these verses from the 15th chapter of Luke. It is the first of three back-to-back lost and found stories. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they muttered, This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. And then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and he says to them, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, Jesus continues, that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. This too is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Friends, let us pray. O oh God, turn us to face you. Use the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts this day to glorify you and to guide us in this life of faith. We pray these things for we know that with you and you alone they are possible. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I suspect that the word repentance which isn't often used in Presbyterian churches, I don't think. I suspect that that word likely conjures images that are not unlike the one on our bulletin cover this morning. It's an old picture, of course, but we know the modern versions of it. The modern iterations of this old photo are a group of protesters from a place like Westboro Baptist picketing a soldier's funeral with signs that have hateful and horrible messages on them. It's the street preacher yelling about eternal damnation. It's the billboard on the highway that advertises a phone number for truth in case you've been looking for it. They all wrap up the same things with this word repentance. And the things they conjure for us is that repentance somehow involves feeling guilt for our past and being fearful about our future. But what if I told you that repentance is actually the exact opposite? What if I told you that repentance is in fact meant to free us from our past And fill us with hope for our future. You know, it's been really interesting to me that 
It's been two months now, which is hard to believe, since a group from our church and two other congregations in our community went to Israel and Jordan. And what's been interesting to me is that the most common question I have got from people after returning is, did you feel safe? That's what everyone wants to know. Alan, did you feel safe while you were in Israel and Jordan? And most of the time I've responded by telling them a story. The story of our first night in Nazareth. Now, Nazareth, many of us know by its biblical story. It is the place where the angel visits Mary and announces that she is with child. It's the hometown where Jesus grows up. But modern-day Nazareth is different, perhaps, than what you imagine. Modern-day Nazareth is a city within Israel. It is an Israeli city, and yet hardly a single Jewish person lives within Nazareth proper. Nazareth is a city that as you drive in on the main road coming from the Mediterranean, you see mosques and minarets on either side. It's a city predominantly of Palestinian Muslims now, with some Palestinian Christians as well. Our first night in Nazareth, it was towards the end of our trip, I got a phone call. It was a call right after I had got in bed from Tom Purdy, my friend and colleague in ministry, the pastor at Christ Church just up the road. Tom and myself and Rachel Bregman were co-leading this trip. And Tom said, Alan, I just got a phone call from so-and-so, an older woman who is part of Tom's congregation on the trip. And she told me that her husband, also an older man, had gone out searching for the Church of the Annunciation, sort of the main Christian tourist draw in Nazareth. He had left about an hour earlier. He wanted to go find it and figure out the way and find the worship times for the next morning so that he could go and worship in their sanctuary. But this woman had called to tell Tom that this man had not returned yet, and that was very unlike him. He would have come back by now. And she was very, very worried. And Tom was calling to ask me if I would come with him and go out into the streets and look for this man. We were in Nazareth right in the final days of Ramadan, which is one of the holiest months in the Islamic faith. And every night of Ramadan, when the sun sets, people break their fast and they pour into the streets. It's like a carnival. There are street vendors selling sweets and toys. Every store is open. There are people Everywhere, there's music blaring. It's like a big party. And Tom and I, we went up and down, up and down for over an hour searching for this man. And with each passing minute, we grew more and more worried. First, we thought perhaps he fell, perhaps he had some sort of medical event, and he was unable to find his way back or to communicate with someone who could help him. We figured maybe he got lost. And as time progressed, the more sort of sinister our worries became. I mean, this guy is sort of your typical Southeast Georgia guy. No offense. (laughs) He's the Sperry topsider, khaki polo, white hair, Protestant American looking guy. What if? White American, Muslim, Middle East city? 
After over an hour, we came back to the hotel and we roused our Arabic-speaking tour guide and he began calling all the hospitals in the area to check and no one had showed up or been brought there that fit his description. So Tom and the the guide decided, we're going to go out one more time. And if we don't find him, we're going to come back and call the police. So Tom and the guide went out, and about 15 minutes later, Tom sent me a message that just said, got him. Got him. I later found out that when this parishioner saw his priest standing there in front of him after two and a half hours of walking and wandering lost in the streets of this city, his first words were, Jesus Christ, am I glad to see you. When they walked back into the hotel lobby where I was waiting several minutes later, you could tell this man had either been at or very close to the point of panic. His shirt was sort of disheveled, his hair kind of all over the place. It's funny because when Tom walked in the door, the first thing I thought and the first thing I said to him is I said, Tom, you know, the next time you preach the parable of the lost sheep... But what's funny is when I said that, I thought that Tom and me and the the guide and even the bus driver who had joined the search by the end, I thought in that allegory we were Jesus. But what I came to find out was we were actually one of the 99 left behind. Because this man who we had worried maybe something happened to him, something bad, something sinister, He came back and he told us an unbelievable story. He said, you won't believe how kind everyone was. He said, the shopkeeper brought me in and was calling his his mother's cousin, trying to figure out if she had ever heard of this hotel. I was trying to remember the name of the car pulled over and the woman was offering me a ride, trying to get me back. She got her cousin on the phone. He said, every person, every person tried to help me. Every person tried to help me. It was like a spear. It was a spear in my heart because I realized that the more sinister my worries became, the less from the truth they took me. It was like a spear in my heart because I immediately turned the question on myself. And I wonder to myself, Alan, if a foreign-looking, foreign-speaking person knocked on your door in Epworth Acres after the sun had gone down and claimed to have been lost, would you have opened it for him? Would you have welcomed them into your home? I realize we were actually one of those 99. I tell you, Jesus says, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons who do not. See, repentance, it's not like that image seems to presuppose. It's not about guilt. It's not about fear. It's not about, like Fred Beekner writes in the quote on the back of our bulletin, it's not even about saying, I'm sorry for the past, although sorry is often a good place to start. Repentance, it begins with that spear. Repentance begins when we can be honest with ourselves 
about the prejudice and the insecurity and the sin that keeps me and all of us hiding behind our doors. That's where repentance begins, and then repentance happens when we make a decision. You know, in this parable, it doesn't really say it in writing, but it's clear in this story that there is a moment where, where the shepherd has to decide, do I go for the one or do I stay behind? Repentance works the same way for us. There is a moment where we have to decide to do differently, where we have to decide to say no to letting worldly fear keep throwing the deadlock on the door to our hearts and instead say yes to opening up to what might very well be grace knocking from the other side. I've been thinking about repentance and the story of the lost sheep a lot this past week. For me, it began with reports about a meeting that happened in our community concerning an organization that actually has its roots back to this church. About four years ago, myself and some youth participated in the cross mission trip in Charlotte, North Carolina. Annie and youth have just returned from that in the last few weeks. When we were there those years ago, we went to a place called Moore Place, a place that I've preached on from this very pulpit. It's a place where, for me at least, it's the closest thing I've ever seen to a solution for chronic homelessness. It's not a shelter. It's a beautiful apartment building that just happens to house people who formerly had no home. And it's amazing what this place has done for many people's lives. People who have found a home at more place, they have suddenly got college degrees. They've suddenly reconnected with family. They've suddenly even gone on to buy their own homes. They found the courage and the strength and the energy, the energy to fight their addictions that some of them live with. I brought the story back about more place to our church and it led to conversations and those conversations eventually led to a gift being made to our church, a six-figure gift to our church earmarked specifically to address chronic homelessness in this community. And that gift, it led to more conversations and those conversations led to the formation of an organization independent of our church called Hand in Hand. And those monies went to support the organization coming together. This organization had identified a site where they thought maybe we can bring this vision to life in our community. And a meeting was held about a week and a half ago where community members, and particularly neighbors from that neighborhood, some of whom are here today, came together to to talk and to learn about it. And those who gathered were overwhelmingly opposed to the project happening in the site that had been selected. And here's the thing, even as someone who has been part of those conversations, I don't judge the opposition. In fact, there are a lot of concerns and very valid questions that were brought up at that meeting. And I have to be honest, right? That's where repentance begins. If I'm beginning with being honest about myself, I have to confess that if that organization was attempting to bring their mission to life in my neighborhood, I would have questions and I would have concerns and I would have a deep need to know more in order to make an informed decision. 
I wasn't able to be at the meeting, but I have since talked to a number of people who were. I've talked to two neighbors in particular from that neighborhood, one who went there in favor of supporting that organization bringing a site, and one who was very opposed to it. And what's interesting is they both used the same word to describe the meeting. They said, Alan, it was ugly. One person called it disturbing. Both of them, both the for camp and the against camp, they told me, I left feeling sad. I left feeling sad about how people treated one another, how people talked about one another at this meeting. It was ugly. That's where I started thinking about repentance and the lost sheep this past week. And then yesterday came. If you need a reminder that ugliness, it's not just in our lives or in our community. Ugliness is everywhere. Yesterday was a brutal reminder. This world... It's becoming this place where we seem so much better at talking about people. We can sit here all day long and talk to you about the homeless, about the immigrant, about the asylum seeker, about the Muslim, about the mainlander, about the islander, about the sea islander. We'll talk to you all day about people as if we're all just the same. We all just fit neatly under whatever label it is that's been prescribed for us. We're really good at talking about people, and we're really bad at talking to people. At actually learning someone's name and meeting someone on their level and discovering the fact that, you know what, they're a son or a daughter too. The fact that they're a brother or sister or mother or father or friend just like any of us. There's a lot of ugly. This world, it seems like our public discourse, and let's be honest, starting at the top, it is devolving into name-calling and bullying and scapegoating. You know, it's wild. Just last week, go figure, I was having a conversation with a pastor friend, and it's this hypothetical that not long ago none of us could imagine, but now it's the conversation pastors have. We, We were talking about when it is you rip up your sermon on a Saturday night. Do you rip it up when three people are killed in California? Or is that number manageable enough and you just stick with the game plan? What about 20 people in Texas? Does it matter if it's adults or children? What about when you wake up like I did this morning to the news that not just 20 people in Texas, but 10 people not a mile from where my parents slept last night in their home were murdered? at a place that had Aaron and I had the crazy idea of, I don't know, taking a vacation and visiting home before school started. The very place that we likely would have gone for drinks on a Saturday night when no one was expecting us at church the next day. Is that when you rip up your sermon and preach something different? This is the world we're living in. And if no one said it, We need to say it here, folks. This ugliness, it's not okay. It's not okay. And here's the reason it's not okay. is because it is predicated on a lie. 
It is a lie that politicians, that marketers, that this world want to sell us on. And the lie is this, that we are different. It's a lie. You want to know how we know it's a lie? Because we happen to be followers of Jesus Christ. We happen to have heard this story called the gospel, the gospel that tells us of a God who knows each and every person so intimately that when even one out of a hundred goes missing. I was reading something on this passage this last week, and the person made a great point. They said, you know, for the people Jesus is preaching to, one out of a hundred, that would have been an insane number. Right? Sheep, livestock, you might as well be talking about bank accounts in the ancient world. The people Jesus is talking to, they would have a hard time imagining having five sheep, much less a hundred. Jesus might as well be saying to them, imagine you wake up tomorrow morning and a billion dollars have been deposited in your account. Would you notice if one of those dollars went missing? I mean, think about having a bowl in your lap right now full of a hundred coins. Would you be able to tell if one of those coins went missing without pouring them out on the pew and sorting them and counting them carefully? This person, they were making the point for people like us. This warning that is is packed into this story. This warning that when you have more than others. When we live lives of comfort and security and relative wealth, we are the ones most prone to not notice when someone or something is missing. And yet the God we meet here knows each of us so well, so well, that when even one of us goes missing, God goes searching. God searches and searches and searches until God finds the missing one. And when God finds that one out of a hundred, God rejoices. Folks, that's the magnitude of love and grace that we are talking about when we talk about the love and grace of Jesus Christ. But as long as we are still blind to that missing one, as long as we are still content sanitizing our conscience by concealing others behind artificial labels, as long as we keep on going, being better at talking about people than talking to people, there is still work to do. And that work, my friends, it is called repentance. For the last few days on my desk, there's been the most recent edition of The Islander. It's a slightly lesser known publication in our community on the front page, there's a photo from that meeting. And the photographer is standing sort of where I'm standing now, and they're looking out at the crowd. The photo is trying to capture uh, a sense of, of how many people were there. But what was really interesting is when I looked at this photo for the first time, I didn't notice any of the faces in it. Instead, my eye was immediately drawn to the upper left-hand corner, where on the back wall of this room, the wall to which everyone's backs were faced, hung three crosses. You know, repentance, it's not 
It's not a one-time thing. It's a decision. It is a decision to change how we live. And it's not easy. Eugene Peterson used to love to say that Christian discipleship, it's rough and it's rugged. It's rough and it's rugged because it requires us to constantly make that decision to turn. A different sermon on repentance would talk about probably the fact that repentance in its Greek language is metanoia and it means to turn your life, to literally turn. It requires us. Walking this life of Christian discipleship requires us to turn and face those crosses. Because those crosses, they represent all of our brokenness and our sin and our misconceptions and our prejudice and our own blindness. But we have to decide to do it. We have to decide to notice those crosses. We have to be people who go out into the world and constantly look into the faces of others and see dripping down their brow the same water that has dripped down Gussie's brow this morning. The waters of baptism. The waters that have sealed all of us in Christ's love. We have to be willing to be people who go out into the world and hear the voices of the church, not just this church, but the church universal, singing the words of Jesus loves me, except it says Jesus loves all of us. We have to be willing to do what doesn't always feel safe. Did you feel safe? Does it matter? To walk this life of Christian discipleship, Someone described the gospel to me recently as being like dynamite. It blows up our old selves so that in Christ we can be put back anew. We have to be willing to be people who let that grace and that gospel blow up all our preconceived notions, to be willing to say no to all those things which the world fears and to say yes to that infinite searching love. The most heartbreaking thing about these tacks, it seems that every time there's a manifesto of someone's hate that goes along with it. We have a manifesto too, folks. It's the one we're called to sign on to, and it's called God's mercy. To walk this rough and rugged path of discipleship, it means and requires of us to constantly repent. Because when and only when we repent will we feel what it feels like to truly be found, to throw our arms up and say, Jesus Christ, am I glad to see you. When and only when we repent will we be freed from our past and filled with hope for our future. When and only when we repent will we hear all the angels in heaven saying together, Amen, and thanks be to God. May we be the ones this day who turn away from the fear the world seeks to call us close to and to turn towards the grace of a God who even now searches for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, 
Amen.